And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please proceed. So here we are, the last Sunday of the liturgical season of Epiphany, which uh, culminates in Transfiguration Sunday every year. Uh, and Ash Wednesday will be this upcoming Wednesday. Uh, we'll have a 9.15 service uh, here for the imposition of ashes, which kicks off Lent. Um, and of course, we've seen in the season of Epiphany, every Sunday we've commemorated one of the events where there was a sort of metaphorical lights turning on moment where Jesus was revealed for who he truly was. Um, but then in Transfiguration Sunday, it's not just a metaphorical lights turning on, right? It's a literal lights turning on. Jesus literally glowed. This isn't like a poetic metaphor. Um, I actually love how you can almost see St. Peter stumbling in, in terms of bewilderment of how to describe it, like, and his clothes were white, and you couldn't bleach clothes that white, right? Like, that's what you do when you're just sort of like, oh, this is crazy. They witnessed this great light coming from Jesus. Together with a voice for heaven, um, it's both a, a literal bright light and theologically um, an incredibly bright light revealing who Jesus was, right? If there was any doubt that this man was indeed fully God as well as being fully man, the event of the transfiguration confirms it, right? Jesus had acted in power, he taught in power, but now a voice comes from heaven for the apostles to hear, this is my beloved son, and he glows. It's a, the glowing um, is a sneak preview glimpse of what resurrected glory would look like. Right? This is very, the very eve, the week, couple weeks before he would be crucified and then three days later be raised again, he gives this sort of teaser trailer of this is what's to come, the glory that he's destined for mankind to have in himself is the kind of glory like the glory of God that is bright with light. It's so bright, um, I even think it's for our imaginations a little too bright, right? It's kind of one of the paradoxes of light, right? If you look at a really bright light, it kind of blinds you a little bit. Um, and I think there's something about the transfiguration that's that way that I think only like only like if you're like a Christian who's 70 or older and has been a Christian for decades and decades, can you really begin to kind of fully grip the transfiguration? How do cells glow? How does that make your clothes glow? There's something baffling about it. And Jesus, in fact, says, keep this quiet until he's raised from the dead because it's going to be misunderstood. It, um, it really left an impression on, on St. Peter's heart because as we heard in his letter, which he wrote, on the eve of his own martyrdom, so about 40 years after the actual event, we just heard in his second letter, Peter writes, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Right, clearly referencing the event of the transfiguration in his letter. Peter um, references this to reveal why he is a credible teacher as to who Jesus is, because he was there. He saw it with his own eyes. But he's, Peter's laying this groundwork of why we should believe the Christian claims. So he's doing it by way of reminder. But he actually doesn't end with, I saw it with my own eyes. Right? He's building an argument, and that's in the middle. The place where he lands, the, the reason he gives to be 
persuaded about who Jesus is and how we're to live as Christians. Um, it's not just the God of nature, right? I think there's something in the Elijah story here that there's this, all this powerful stuff, the storm and the lightning and the earthquake, and it says God was not in that, even as it was caused by him. It's not even the incredible experience of seeing Jesus glow on Mount Tabor. Peter says the ultimate ground of our full confidence is the Bible. In verse 19, he calls it the prophetic word. In verse 20, he calls it the scripture. And of course, for Peter, this would have been chiefly the Old Testament, but not just the Old Testament, because just two chapters later, Peter says, we love reading Paul's letters, and we, but people misunderstand them like they do the other scriptures, calling Paul's, referring to Paul's letters as if they were, as in fact they are, scripture. Peter says then, the Bible is our most trustworthy witness. It's the true source of our illumination, intellectual and spiritual. And then Peter uses um, this very poetic language to describe spiritual experience, which is kind of needed, because how do you describe what kind of goes on in here? Peter uses this language of lamps and morning stars, and I want to unpack that um, this morning, because I think what Peter's doing is he's kind of giving us a map of what the stages of illumination I think epiphany lights on illumination look like so that we can be find ourselves kind of on that map and be encouraged to continue on in that journey of being illuminated. I use that word because for two centuries, like from the second to fourth century, that was the primary nickname that Christians used for each other was the illuminated ones, the ones who had had light shone on them and in them. So the first thing that Peter does is he likens scripture to a lamp in a dark place. Um, and for those of you who were here a number of Sundays ago when we were talking about the Advent lesson with the virgins trimming the lamps, and I brought in one of those little clay lamps. A first century lamp is a very small thing, right? It's this little bit of light, um, which seems like a sort of kind of a small metaphor to describe the Bible, right? Wouldn't you think like, oh, it's a glowing comet or something, right? It's a little lamp. But he says it's a lamp in a dark place, and the word dark there could be translated murky or gloomy. It's the, it's the word you'd use to describe the inside of a cave. And I think um, what Peter means by this picture of a dark place is the world, which apart from God speaking to us, is sort of in terms of like trying to find something you can really anchor on as truth, is a dark place. Right? One of the interesting things about the even secular philosophy of the last 100, 140 years is they've admitted the same thing, that there is no world to grip onto with your own mind, right? That there's this darkness, this impenetrable darkness of knowing that only God actually breaks. It's also a picture of uh, our hearts, which obviously exist in the world and are also dark, that we don't know natively what is true north in terms of how to find God and live in a way that is pleasing to him. The Bible is this single lamp in a dark cave, which if you were in a dark cave, I've never really been caving in a cave that didn't already have lights like already shining everywhere. Has anyone, Josh, have you ever been caving in a cave with no lights? You have, okay. Josh is my brother, he's visiting from out of town, and I thought he might have been in a cave before. He's, he's kind of an adventurer. Uh, or what? Does the coal mine count? Sure, yeah. They so, cut out all the yeah, a place with total blackness. Imagine if you saw a little lamp, right? You'd be like, get me out of this darkness, I'm going to the lamp. Right? And then once you are arrived at the lamp, the light from the lamp illuminates other things for you to see. And this is a picture of how scripture works for us. It's a small light, but it's how God speaks. And it requires patience. Right? I mean, and it's a small light that 
you can ignore the Bible if you want to, right? You can not ever read it. It can just stay on your shelf, right? Just like it's a little lamp. It's not sort of smacking us across the head. But if, as long as we do so, we remain in darkness. And it requires great patience, right? Just like Elijah waiting for all these natural phenomena to pass until he heard the still small voice. Scripture takes a while to get your hands around and to understand. And it requires patience to hear from God. If you arrived at a lamp in a dark cave, not only would you enjoy its light, but you would kind of take hold of that lamp with your own hands to find your way out of the cave. And again, I'm just ex- sort of wanting to kind of unpack ex- to explode this metaphor that Peter is using. Um, because Peter then does that too. He transitions. He says, it's like a lamp until the day star appears, right? Like you've come out of the darkness and are in the outside world again. This picture, the twin picture of the lamp, we draw near to it in the hearing and in church. And if you listen to it, you know, recordings as you drive or whatnot. And then you, you take it for yourself when you seek to study and understand it on your own time. This uh, light from a lamp isn't total illumination, but it's infinitely better than darkness. It's the means of getting out of the cave. Like Peter says, it's a lamp until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, which corresponds to an inner spiritual experience, hard to describe, that again, isn't this overpowering, I'm knocked on the floor, I can't do anything. I, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not a morning person, so I have not seen the morning star before the dawn very many times in my life. But the few times I have, it was really pretty, right? This little sparkling Venus, you know, like up in the sky. Um, but again, it's a little light. It's enchanting, it's sweet, but it's not like whoosh. And I love this sort of de- gentle way that St. Peter is inspired to describe that, that moment when you're not just reading about Jesus on the page, but you're actually reading about Jesus in real life. And the experience of that, it's like a star rising. It's like uh, many spiritual writers describe it like a warmth, like this warmth of experience. Um, and it's the thing that is actually the goal of reading the scriptures. Right? We don't learn the scriptures to become masters of a book. The scriptures sort of have succeeded when it becomes a window that breaks through into just real existential encounter with the living God. And how do you describe that? It's sort of like a star rising in your heart. That's the language that the Bible gives us to describe it. When the star rises, um, it's no longer just being, feels like it's being illuminated from without, but this feeling of being illuminated from within by the Holy Spirit. Which doesn't mean then you just run off into a sort of esoteric quietude for the rest of your life. The scriptures still, for the, the, they actually ch- um, become even more important, significant, and enjoyable than before. Once there's a sp- sort of spiritual experience through the scriptures, um, reading them becomes one of life's greatest joys. And I, just to confess, it wasn't for me for years and years. Like, raised in a Christian home, went to a Christian college, took like dozens and dozens of hours of Bible classes there. At no point did I ever actually enjoy reading the Bible. I never read it when I didn't have to. It was like, oh, I've got to read some more of this for an assignment or for a paper. It wasn't until sort of many years of patiently sort of clinging to the little lamp until this star rose. It's like, wow, this is so great. And now I love reading the scriptures, but for a decade or more, that wasn't the case. Now having been blessed by the mercy of God with this, the experience, the spiritual experience through the scriptures, the scripture takes on new life. It doesn't get left behind. 
And so I encourage you, I know um, some of you have had that experience through the scriptures and maybe some of you haven't. I encourage you to kind of see the map and stick with the goal, right? Cling to the lamp intellectually until you experience what the Bible can be for us. The thing that grounds our knowledge of who God is and who Jesus is. Lastly, if we kind of um, just fully explode the metaphor that we have a little lamp and then sort of the breaking of dawn and the morning star in the sky, on the, if we kind of track this trajectory of illumination of greater and greater light being shone on the truth, it's very easy to then imagine the next step of, well, what's brighter than when there's a morning star in the sky? Well, when the sun is fully risen and is at noonday. And I believe that even though Peter doesn't extend the metaphor that way, with the rest of the scriptures, that's plainly a metaphor for when we get to see God face to face, when we die, um, if we die as Christians. And, or, or if Jesus comes back again before we die, we don't know if that will happen or not. But right now, you know, we, we, we live by a little light. We live by a small but profound inner illumination. But ultimately, we'll um, be in the full light of day. That's what St. Paul says, right? Now we know in part, then we'll know fully. And so that's the hope that this sort of trajectory of illumination increases through the course of Christian life and is completed when we finish the course of this life and get to see God face to face. And the glory of seeing him face to face, how do you picture that? Well, that's, to come back around full circle, that's what we see in the transfiguration. What is it like to look at Jesus face to face when we die? It's kind of like what Peter and James and John saw on Mount Tabor. Right? It's a man, it's the Jesus who died for us, but he's glowing really bright, and there's this knowledge of the communion of saints, and it's sort of like, whoa! That's this kind of glimpse that we see in Transfiguration of the illumination that we hope to come. Amen.